Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Welcome to Thermal Lens, a special series focusing on thermal remote sensing created by me, your host, Rachana Mamidi, Agnieszka Sojinska, and Jennifer Susan Adams. Agnieszka is currently a research associate at the University of Leicester in the UK and has been working in the area of thermal remote sensing since 2017. Jennifer is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zurich in Switzerland and is currently focusing on measuring land surface temperature over forests. Agnieszka and Jennifer are also chairpersons of the Thermal Remote Sensing Special Interest Group of EARCEL, the European Association of Remote Sensing Laboratories. This group aims to bring together all the relevant stakeholders and provides a communication platform in the form of workshops, special sessions, seminars and more. Agnieszka and I are hosting today's episode with Michael Abrams. Mike is the science team leader of the ASTER mission and ASTER stands for Advanced Spaceborne Thermal Emission and Reflection Radiometer, which is one of the instruments on board NASA's Terra satellite launched way back in 1999. Mike has 50 years of experience in this field and has led the ASTER mission throughout its 20 plus year journey. He is a geologist by education and was also responsible for the development of new remote sensing instruments at NASA JPL. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Agnieszka and I are super excited and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. And I'm going to jump right in to all the questions that we wanted to ask you. So Aster is one of the five sensors on board NASA's Terra satellite, right? And Aster images in the visible uh, near-infrared, shortwave infrared, thermal infrared, all these bands. Correct. And it's been collecting data for since the last 23 years. Yes, March 2000 was the first data set. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It was originally planned as most instruments are. It's tested, it's lifetime. The funding lifetime was either five or six years. But since everything worked perfectly uh, and NASA had changed the plans, originally there was going to be like 15 of these bus size platforms. Uh, but budget reality set in. So there were three, Terra, Aqua, and Aura, to focus on different parts of the Earth system. But since we worked perfectly after five years, we got extended mission status. And uh, ever since then, every two years and now three years, we have to compete with all existing NASA missions that are beyond their prime mission for a limited pot of funding. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure every three years to show that we are still relevant. But the good thing is, is that in every one of these competitions, and there have been six or seven of them now, uh, Terra has come out number one, which is really gratifying. So it's not just Aster, but it's the combination of all the instruments that are on the platform that have developed a huge community of users, both academic, commercial, government, regulatory, military users. Uh, so we have quite an uh, entrenched set of users who will be very sorry to see the mission end. But 23 years now and maybe three more is quite a long time. It's really exceptional. That, that's incredible. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so having to prove that there is still a requirement for this imagery every three years, is this 
all NASA satellites or is it for some class of satellites? Yeah, no, all, all satellites, but we compete with Earth science satellites, uh, our instruments of which there are about 18 or 20 that are beyond their prime mission. So a number of them are going through their first two, three, four, five years of prime mission, but then all the rest that are still functioning have to compete to see if they're going to continue and NASA will terminate some of them and do every year. Uh, the planetary program goes through exactly the same exercise every, I think they do every three years also. So there's a limited amount of money NASA has, and there's always a clamor for our bigger, better, newer missions that are ungodly expensive. And maintaining an existing instrument is relatively inexpensive. So that's, hopefully they take that into account in their budget, but who knows, it's all secret. That is quite exciting. So if we look at Aster as a sensor, yeah. what makes it special? Well, at the, at the time of launch, it was the highest spatial resolution instrument in the, in the civilian sector. The commercial sector was just starting to put up higher resolution panchromatic instruments, if you will, or just uh, visible instruments like SPOT. Uh, the military rumored our military had higher resolution instruments that did specialized things. But at the time, uh, ours was the highest resolution. We were the only one that provided high resolution digital elevation models with our stereo capability. And that continued uh, just about to the present as far as providing a free global data set. But there are, in the last three or four or five years, there are a few others that have come into existence that are better resolution. Multispectral TIR, we are the only instrument with global multispectral high resolution TIR coverage still. This is after 23 years. Um, as you know, uh, LST is going to be a similar instrument uh, in 2029. The next instrument that's comparable is the uh, French Indian instrument Trishna which I think is 2024, 2025 launch, very imminent. And then the U.S. Is, has planning on their SPG instrument. Again, a five-channel thermal instrument like Aster for maybe 2028, 2029. The only other instrument that's really comparable in some fashion is on the space station. And that's a U.S. instrument called EcoStress, which was designed to look at uh, evapotranspiration of plants and to help predict plant physiology and drought. It, uh, it's, it's an interesting orbit because the space station allows coverage at all different times during the day because of its peculiar orbit. So you can build up sort of a diurnal history, whereas the polar orbiting satellites always see the same place, the same time of day. But the problem with the space station limitation is that it's in about a 50 degree orbit. So you can't go above 50 degrees latitude. So you miss all of Northern Europe, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And EcoStress has been up for three or four years, I think. But shortly after launch, three of its five instruments of its bands were no longer able to be recorded. So it was a two-channel instrument until I think just recently. So Aster is still unique as far as the, the TIR. We are fully functional and operational and gathering more data than we ever have since we were able to recover some of the memory modules last year that had been lost due to cosmic rays. So it's 
it's it's just like it was at the day of launch, which is pretty remarkable for the for the TIR for sure. Absolutely, and yeah. Aster still actually has one of the highest spatial resolutions available. Yeah, t right. EcoStress is uh, sixty by ninety meter pixels, and we're at ninety meter pixels. Nobody else has got multispectral TIR anywhere in that range, and hasn't you know since we launched. So that's a pretty good capability. That it, we're glad that it still works. I don't know if you remember in two thousand eight, which is already eight years uh, from launch and past the prime mission, the the shortwave infrared detectors. Uh, d decided they had enough. So we lost one of our three instruments. Answer is actually three separate instruments. But um, I'm glad it was the SWIR that went and not the TIR. Even better if it was the visible. <laughs> but we didn't have a choice. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we have a lot of uh, visible uh, data, of course, now. Of course, and much higher spatial resolution, yeah. Absolutely. And more temporal resolution and graphical coverage. Yes. And it's getting better every year as more commercial companies step in and more uh, civil, civilian com companies, countries launch multiple satellites so you can get much better temporal resolution. So if the Astor instrument was designed today, how would it be different in terms of, you know, payload design or the kind of data? Oh, God, it'd be one-tenth one one or one-hundredth the size. Miniaturization did not exist back in, let's see, we launched in, in 99. So the instrument was first designed in components probably about 1990. So we did not have miniaturization. We did not have large data capacity. The instrument itself, just Aster, is huge. And now you can put the whole thing in, you know, duplicate the instrument, maybe in two bread boxes. So that's one thing. So that saves on cost, on power, on everything else. Uh, signal to noise, much better. Detector technology has advanced. Gradings have advanced. Uh, spectrometers have advanced. So we could get a much more capable instrument if we designed one. Now, well, SVG is, is a good example of that. Uh, imaging spectrometer for the VSWIR. The TIR is not going to show that much of a big advance. Same channels, just about maybe a three to five micron high temperature band. Uh, so it's going to be, I guess, 60 meter spatial resolution, as are the other two satellites planned. So there's a, a, an increase in the spatial resolution. Uh, any Delta T is uh, going to be better because the detector technology is better but not that much, but it's an incremental improvement. It's not a breakthrough. Whereas the imaging spectrometers are clearly a breakthrough over multispectral data. Not just miniaturization, but now there's a lot more of edge computing that's happening on the satellite. So a lot of exactly. data on the satellite. And there's, again, if in case if, if there's a constellation of small satellites rather than one giant school bus sized satellite like Terra, there's more, there's inter-satellite links and you know all this stuff. So how do you think this latest, these kind of latest developments would have affected the applications of Aster? Well, the, the, the TIR, there doesn't seem to be the technology or the desire maybe to get into much higher spatial resolution and also the repeat. Uh, we're going to get fairly good repeat because the instruments planned have very large swaths. So I guess we're going in the two, three, four day repeat cycle, but nothing compared to what some of these V their instruments are in the small satellites that I think are there are enough of them up there. They're planned on like hourly coverage, certainly a few times a day for everything. I don't think in the TIR 
in the near future we're ever going to see anything like that. But there may not be the desire or the applications that really require it. The, the plant physiology is one of the key ones, and the sta space station is a good start on that. Uh, the polar orbiting ones, you know, have the limitation. They always come back to the same time. So that, that's a problem. So you've got to stagger them so maybe they can, you can have a morning one and an afternoon one. And that gives you two nighttime passes too. But I don't, don't particularly see anybody planning, not in the next decade, for something similar to like the, the Wiener coverage. So uh, you mentioned uh, evapotranspiration and plant health as, a, as an application. What other uh, applications were of uh, purpose for Aster data? Well, a couple of things we've, we've concentrated on since launch. One is, is the volcanoes. And that was one of the prime motivations for how we were going to acquire data. Um, because of the, the limitations on data capacity at the time, we only have an 8% duty cycle. So we can, on average, we can only be on 8% of an orbit. That means we have to schedule the instrument every single day on which 600 scenes we're going to acquire. So we made a decision early on based on the science team uh, that one of the disciplines we would focus on is volcanology. So a, a team of small team of volcanologists on the science team uh, defined uh, about 1,500 active volcanoes in the world, and they set up uh, a requirement for acquisition. So for some of those, we, we acquire them every time we pass over them day or night. For the very lowest probability ones, maybe four times a year. So those data give us some monitoring um, ability. Uh, more importantly, we can, over 20 years, we've built up a time history of the behavior of volcanoes. And there's a project called the Astro Volcano Archive, which is separate from the Astro team, um, that is looking to mine that archive that has all 1,500 volcanoes, every single Astro scene cut out that covers those volcanoes. So you can look at both uh, the thermal behavior of each volcano and the SO2 gas emissions, which is a second key possible premonitory signal from for unrest of volcanoes. So that's one of the main things we've used the TIR. Uh, the other one is our urban heat islands. But again, we're, the, the limitation of the times of day, you know, we can get 1030 in the morning and whatever, 1030 at night may not be the optimal times to look at heat island, but it's what we've got. So we've worked with a number of researchers, uh, particularly with uh, people who are funded out of the EU over the last decade or so, who have been looking at several cities. So we've done acquisitions for them for the TIR. So those are the, some of the two main applications that, that continue. In the last few decades, there's been an increasing commercial interest in satellite imagery in general, but not... Yeah so much for thermal images, right? Right. Do you think in the next decade or in the next couple of decades, there would be more commercial interest that would result in more uh, commercial constellations for thermal imaging? It's, it's hard to imagine it. We've, we've had a constant struggle to convince funding people that we need multispectral TIR. Uh, there is, I think there is a company that has a satellite, satellites are planning on it that are going to be mainly for like forest fires, uh, high temperature events with uh, small satellites, very frequent repeat. 
but um, and then the Italians have finally gotten funded for a thermal instrument. I think it's a CubeSat project that only will be looking at volcanoes. So with frequent coverage, I think it's a, a 4U instrument. So it's very small, but I think they're going to do several of them. But otherwise, I haven't heard of that much interest other than the three missions that are going up that are basically the same as Aster. That seems to satisfy people's requirements right now. The military is another story, but uh, they're a different world. Uh, here, uh, I would like to disagree. Okay. Because just recently, so uh, we are having this special interest group on thermal remote sensing. Yes. And just recently, there was a conference in Frascati organized by ESA. And the interest was enormous. While uh, we had guests there who said, oh, I remember when Thermal brought like five people together, while the conference was completely booked and we had 300, over 300 participants and everybody said, let's cooperate, let's cooperate. What, what was the, the major emphasis there on unfulfilled needs for TIR? There is a lot of ask about vegetation health, as you mentioned. Yeah, so that, that continues. Right? Um, that continues, yes. Fire is also one of the applications. That continues. Urban has a lot of applications and basically agriculture in terms of productivity, health and things like that. So having observed that, I was wondering, uh, how do you think Asta contributed to that change from having five people all together <laughs> uh, to that massive boom that we see now yeah well ho hopefully we were the major contributor to that since we were the only game in town for satellite data um, there's been historically a, a technological gap between uh, the vSware and the TIR particularly let's think of uh, field instruments I mean we pioneered and put out contracts with private companies you know decades ago to try to build instruments that were uh, thermal spectrometers and it's it, it's difficult technology to make something that somebody could carry uh, we put out a few contracts a couple of commercial companies now that as a result of that but that has lagged behind compared to the vSwer because i think the technology is so much simpler same thing with uh, laboratory instruments for the tir it requires a lot more care in how you make the measurements a lot of things that can mess you up if you're not really paying attention to how you make the measurement and you get bogus results even if you have a great instrument so the, the technology i think lagged behind what was happening in the in the vSwer from from the early days and maybe that the tr is catching up a little bit but there aren't nearly as many applications as you know for vSwer imaging spectrometer i, mean, I could i could take off 100 applications that are ready to use the data or are using it already. Similarly, with aircraft data, which is sort of the precursor of space data, we built the first thermal instrument, TIMS, which was a five-channel instrument about 30 years ago, 40 years ago now. Uh, since then, there have been a few, not as many. Commercial companies have built a few instruments, but they're expensive. Not that many people have been clamoring to buy the data. So again, it's it's lagged behind what's happened in, in the, the vSwear area. But I'm glad to see there were 300 people. I know a bunch of people from, from JPL were at that meeting because we're actively involved in the space missions. So that, that's good to see, but yeah. 
So if we come back to the motivation that uh, that has led to building Aster Sensor, what was the main motivation and do you think it's still valid? Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. The, the history of Aster early on was it was a, a follow-on to JERS-1, which was a Japanese instrument with, I forget, visible and a few swear bands that only worked for a few months. Um, but then the, the organization MIDI decided they wanted to pursue a follow-on instrument whose entire motivation was to support the uh, mineral exploration industry in Japan. So they designed an instrument, which had a different name, that was uh, five or six uh, swerve bands, some stereo, a couple of visible channels, and I forget, one or two thermal channels. And that was it. And then NASA was uh, soliciting instruments for the first for the uh, AM1 platform for EO1 for uh, for our, our platform for Terra. And my predecessor Ann Kale was the the PI on that, and she proposed a separately a, a one or two channel thermal instrument, and then a multispectral TIR spectrometer. That would be a line on the ground. So she it was very peculiar. She, she got a letter from NASA that said, congratulations, we, we love you. Please go work with the Japanese. We're not picking your spectrometer. Go work with the Japanese and see if you can influence them on the TIR instrument they're building. So we went over there in 1988, the first meeting, and started working with the Japanese to uh, change the design of their instrument, which got renamed Aster and became what it was. But originally it was a mineral exploration instrument. So that's why we have the six SWIR channels, uh, which is super, a few V-SWIR channels, the stereo, but we were able to add TIR channels and increase the spatial resolution somewhat. Not, not where we wanted it. We wanted 60 meters, but the Japanese engineers at the time said, uh, we probably can't do that. So it had a very strange start. And uh, it was designed for, for geology, for mineral exploration. And that's still one of the greatest success stories of Aster data is from the mineral exploration industry. Though reports coming out from commercial companies are few and far between, but um, I have a lot of contacts and have worked with that uh, discipline. And so I know that there have been many, many, many significant resource discoveries based on Aster data, many. And it's still used, that's one of its prime uses, the VSOR data, even it's, although it's stopped in 2008, the land basically doesn't change where you're doing exploration. So rocks are rocks. So that data, the data are still just exceptionally useful. Speaking of the Aster data, what kind of users usually query this data the most? Uh, is it governmental users? Yeah, we're allowed to to uh, amass uh, very limited statistics because of privacy laws. But so we can look at the the dot. So dot edu dot com whatever. Um, the, the major user, I'm trying to think. It's probably edu or dot gov U.S. government, which could be anybody. Uh, commercial users are pretty high. We have users worldwide. It's not you know limited to the U.S. and for the last 15 years, the data have been free. So that was a big hurdle we had to overcome with our Japanese colleagues, with, with MIDI, not the colleagues. 
who insisted that there be some cost recovery. And uh, the U.S. abandoned that model with Landsat about 15 years ago, and there was almost a hundredfold increase in the number of orders, and it went from $4,000 a scene to zero. So we finally convinced the Japanese ministry to follow that model, and we saw about a tenfold increase in the, the use of Aster data. It's funny, I, I was involved in some early studies with aircraft data where uh, we discovered if you charge $1 for our scenes, doesn't matter, $1, people won't use it because the hurdle in the, the ordering system, the bureaucracy, how do I pay for it? It didn't matter how much it cost. So that was a valuable lesson. So making it free is the way to do it. And everybody does that. Even now, I think even with a lot of these modern payment methods, uh, there's a lot of these procedural hurdles internally for a lot of companies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like you know at a university you have to I guess you know get get um, permission. You have to get purchase requisitions. You have to go through your contracting department. It's just you give up your hands and you look for free data. The fact that NASA and also ESA has made a lot of data free has made a lot of people uh, from um, a lot of companies, for example, or startups from other non, non-space sectors who would never have thought of using satellite imagery for their applications, think of satellite imagery. Yeah, good point. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, the, the, the niche market, if you will, the you know, very high spatial resolution, the uh, extremely high repeat cycle, is still in the hands of commercial companies. And that's a niche that certainly governments uh, don't want to f- fulfill. They have, there's no good need to do that. They're still basically science-driven organizations and requirements. Certainly NASA is, which is why we don't touch anything quasi-operational. And uh, we d- gave up or divorced ourselves from any high spatial resolution imaging leaving that to the, again, to the private sector, feeling there wasn't that much of a science need for it and the private sector could fulfill that. Probably, I don't know, I guess Eason probably did the same. I think it's it's really good for the uh, space economy this way, right? Because the free data given out by the space agencies is like giving out free samples. Exactly. Yeah, ex- people get, you know, 10 or 20 meter data and they think, boy, what could I do with two meter data? Yeah. <laughs> and yes, so there's, there's definitely a market, judging by the number of, commercial startups, many of them will succeed, many won't, but there's going to be, there's so much more data available. It's just, it's just remarkable. I'm very encouraged. I've been doing some work just in the vSphere data. The last two or three years, there have been one, two, three, or five hyperspectral instruments in space now where there were none. So I was able to get data from all of them for a single site to look at some mineral uh, identification. But already, you know, that that's a major breakthrough to have that kind of data, uh, hyperspectral VSOR data available. Um, the only downside is it's not global. They're all sampling missions. And SBG is the only global mission on the horizon, but that's six or seven years away. But still, there's a lot of data available now. And, and for, I don't know, for commercial users, certainly for science users, um, it's been not very difficult to get permission to get the data or even to request acquisitions, especially so. So I've been able to get all the data, which is very, very good. So that's extremely exciting. Huge application, huge market. 
So you mentioned that Astrodata Archive can still be used because rocks don't change, obviously. Do you also have a kind of a favorite data set or any uh, discovery that was made throughout the, the archive of the 20 plus years? Or you remember any interesting publication about that? Oh, boy. Well, the mineral exploration, I think, has been one of the great successes because the instrument was designed for that originally, remembering that MIDI was trying to bolster their exploration community. And uh, that has really been one of the big successes of Astor, even though it's not as pu published or publicly available, the information. But periodically, a few times a year, somebody will give a talk or publish something or the company will release a uh, press release that based on Aster, we have found this new uh, rare earth deposit in Chile or whatnot. But I know that, that it has fulfilled its duty there, even though NASA would never have launched a build funded an instrument just to do geologic remote sensing. But the other things it could do are good. The DEM, um, even though they're much better ones available now for 15, 18 years, it was the only game in town for relatively high spatial resolution DEMs. And it's funny, we, we, we packaged the DEM in one degree by one degree tiles. So there are about 23,000 that cover the, the land surface. So you figure, okay, well, 23,000, we have distributed something like 150 million tiles. That just blows me away. And, and people are still downloading it at, you know, a few million a year, even though they're better data. I think one of the reasons is our data are pretty easy to get to and people who started using it know how to get to it. Um, I've worked on trying to get some of the other companies' data sets and a few of them I just gave up. I couldn't navigate the system. So that's that's always surprised me is how much data we distribute of the, the DEMs, even though there are better data sets available, but harder to get to, maybe not global. It's also continuity. I mean, if you have an archive of 20 years, yeah. then you also know how to use that. You uh, you can compare the, uh, the current data sets to the previous ones. Well, one thing we do is for every one of the 600 or so scenes we acquire uh, every day. We also acquire a stereo image. So you can look at the time history of uh, topography. That's been super, super important to the glaciology community. It is one of the primary data sets that's been used to look at the change in the volume of glaciers. And we, we've targeted 100,000 glaciers uh, since the mission began. And many books have been published, articles, continuing studies using uh, the data, which is unique to look at the time history of the third dimension, the thickness of the, how you count. You can always get the area from any visible instrument, but getting the third dimension where you can calculate the volume, uh, our data are unique. And um, all the studies have shown the bad news that all, almost all the glaciers are losing. We know that, but we can, it's quantitative. You can look at the 20 year rate because we have data from day one. So that's been a real success of the DEMs. What do you think is the main legacy of Aster and how does that influence the current missions being built, be it commercial or, uh, or from agencies? Certainly the, the TIR, I mean, if you look at the, the three instruments that are going to be launched and the one that's there, EcoStress, they are basically clones of Aster. 
granted that if you look at the 8 to 12 micron region, you don't have a lot of flexibility in where you can put your bands. And the width of the bands is dictated by the, the technology, the sensor uh, sensitivity, yeah, the detector sensitivity and some of the optics. So in space, you probably couldn't do a 20 channel TIR instrument, not currently. So, uh, you know, we kind of, there are only so many permutations where you can put bands. So we, we did it and, uh, you know, you really can't change it. You can noodle the bands a little bit, but basically the placement of the bands is pretty much the five we did, which were based on studies, based on the aircraft instruments we built and deciding, you know, what bands would be good. And then looking at absorption features for various things and where do you want to put the bands? So Astor's legacy on that, whether people um, believe it or not, all the instruments are basically, you know, Astor two, three, four, five. That's how I look at them. Spatial resolution, not that much better. So that that's really good. Signal to noise is certainly gonna is gonna be better. EcoStress already has demonstrated that, and the instruments coming up will have many times better signal to noise, which is quite important. But we did what the technology allowed us to do at the time. Still, still useful. Yeah, Mike, you mentioned that before building the Aster um, instrument, you've experimented with uh, running the payload or flying the payload on a on a on a plane, and then uh, yeah, different different instruments. But we were we were looking at um, what channels do you want in the TIR? How do you differentiate them? So we had the, the thermal infrared multispectral scanner TIMS was probably the first multispectral TIR aircraft instrument that was uh, operational. And then a second aircraft instrument was called the Modus Aster Simulator, something like that, Master, which I think had 10 or 12 channels in the TIR, maybe even more. And that included two or three channels in the three to five micron region, which hardly ever worked. It was a different, I don't know, difficult technology to master or something, but it did work occasionally. But again, those provided us the, the information we needed on how many bands we could usably put, where to place them, and then factoring in the existing technology capability to design Aster's TIR. So going from, yeah, aircraft instruments, that's always been the route to, to get going to space instruments. Is you first, you know, make laboratory studies, and then maybe you could build some field instruments to go out, and then you could try to build some aircraft instruments where you could look at different environments, get aerial coverage. And based on that, you could make some intelligent decisions on how to build what, what parameters to use for a space-based instrument. How has this decision-making process around, around these instruments changed uh, or evolved, let's say? I don't, I think it's the same, the same, uh, the same route. I don't think it's changed very much. Maybe, you know, instruments have gotten better, but it's the same decision tree you have to follow. You can't just say, oh, I want to build a hyperspectral instrument in the, in the TIR and I'm going to go to the engineers and say, here, build me this instrument without knowing anything about what the parameters were. That's um, an interesting dynamic I've, uh, between the, the science people and the engineers because the science people always want more and more capability and the engineers <laughs> want to build something that will work. So it's it's a, I've been in that position a few times, so it's uh, there are always compromises involved, where 
nobody is completely satisfied, but everybody is happy with the final result that it's something that will work and that will provide useful data. But science pe people always want more, more and better. Like we wanted you know, better uh, spatial resolution in the TIR for Aster. But the, uh, let's see, who was it? Fujitsu was the company that built it and they pushed back and they said, you know, we're not in so many words because they wouldn't do that. But basically the message was um, they didn't think they could build a reliable instrument with better spatial resolution at the time. Now, not so much, but at the time that was clearly it. And we wanted other things on the instrument, but again, uh, the technology just really wasn't there. Perhaps the, the, the most God, difficult thing we had to face was the data recording capability and the transmission capability to the ground. So I don't know, picture these, you know, computer chips, which is what we have that record the data on the satellite. And every two orbits, we have to dump the chips because they fill up. And that's why we have only an 8% duty cycle rather than global coverage. We don't have the recording capability. We have to share those chips with all the other instruments on Terra. So that was, we'd much rather have an instrument that it was always on and always had global coverage, but not to be. Aster is not the only instrument on Terra. There are many other instruments. And for instance, MODIS is a very important instrument, also imaging in thermal infrared. So how important was it to collocate those two sensors together? Well, it was, it was all five sensors. And as the name implied, this was going to be the uh, sort of the land surface platform. And so aqua is, as the name implies, is, is uh, water and aura is more atmosphere. So the five instruments that were selected were to look at things having to do with the land. So there are the two sort of imaging instruments, which was Aster, high spatial resolution, uh, MODIS, which was low spatial resolution, but very large swath width and two-day repeat cycle. And then we have some atmospheric instruments. So MOPIT is a, a sounding instrument to look at CO2 and methane in the troposphere. Um, MISER is a unique instrument. Nothing ever has come along like it. It's multi-angle, uh, so it has nine cameras looking at different angles. And its goal is to characterize the aerosols, the dust particles, uh, the water vapor particles, the aerosols. And you need that multi-angle measurements to be able to do that. And it's been phenomenal. And then Ceres is a continuation of five similar instruments that measure globally the Earth radiation budget. So it looks at incoming, outgoing, uh, long wave and short wave radiation. So there are instruments, I think four other similar series instruments uh, on different platforms at different times of day. So we were the, the land, the Terra, and then uh, there's, a, uh, there's the other modus, which is in the afternoon constellation. So we're the only one in the morning constellation at 1030. And there are no plans to repeat that with any instruments. They're all going in the afternoon, apparently. Any similar instruments. Uh, the, the Indians have an instrument, the Chinese. Uh, ESA has similar, the Sentinel-2, Sentinel-1, Sentinel-2, yeah. They're all afternoon instruments. But uh, one of the unique things about MODIS on, on Terra is the fact that it's the morning instrument. 
and that was selected partially because it was thought that the morning would be, have less cloud cover, less cloud buildup. I'm not sure statistics have borne that out to a great extent as was thought at the time, but still there, there are fewer clouds. So that, that's the main reason I think we went into a morning orbit. Speaking of uh, all these instruments on the Terra satellite, what do you remember what were the biggest challenges in designing these and what kind of requirements they had from the satellite bus? No, I wasn't, I wasn't around as in my position at the time. I'm a, just a simple geologist. And uh, in the 19, mid-19, late 1980s, I was happily doing my geology with, with instruments. And the, the team leader at the time, Ann Kale, um, gathered people here at, at, at JPL to be on the science team and to work with her on Aster. So she asked me if I wanted to <laughs> head up the working group on oceanography. Yeah, me the, <laughs> me the geologist. Okay, oceanography. So I did that, and then she wanted me to, to liaison with the, the uh, outreach and PR people. So I did that, but still, I was doing my own my own research work. So I wasn't involved with the those kind of uh, edu- engineering decisions that were being made at the time. Uh, I got into it when she retired um, 20 years ago, and she said, "Okay, I'm finished. You take over." <laughs> so I wasn't expecting that. So I pretty much stopped being a research scientist, geologist, and became the Aster science team leader and manager. But yeah, I, I was only very peripherally involved for the, the initial design phases. And I got to see the launch though, that was ever so cool. Yeah. If you look back at the mission and say, uh, let's fantasize. Let's uh, think that we can transfer ourselves back, uh, say, 30 years ago and meet the initial mission. Yeah. Would you tell them to change anything? Oh, as a geologist, I'm really happy with what Aster did. It did exactly what I would have wanted it to do. I, before Aster, I was involved in, and led a very large, by NASA standards, uh, mineral exploration assessment program. So it was looking at what you could do with uh, VSWR data, not so much TR because there wasn't much. Uh, looking at mineral exploration, we worked hand in hand with exploration companies, with oil exploration companies. Three or four year project published a massive volume that's still used. Um, so, you know, our recommendation was out of that, gee, we would love to have multispectral swear in space. TIR wouldn't be bad and a DEM would be great. So boy, was I happy when that actually happened <laughs> from my geology background. So yeah, I was thrilled. I'm not sure I could have done much more other than, yeah, we got all the coverage, we got global coverage, good SWIR data, you know, the best you could get at the time with the technology. So yeah, I was, selfishly, I was good for me. That is quite a summary after so many years of a mission. I wouldn't change a thing that's... Uh... <laughs> As a geologist, other people in other disciplines, I'm sure, would have different requirements that were not met. But uh, since MIDI, desi- MIDI designed this as their exploration follow-on tool after JERS-1, um, I was happy. <laughs> the other geologists who were involved on ASTRA you know, in the late 1980s were also thrilled, just thrilled that we got, we got a great instrument for doing geology. And do you know how, how much data was acquired over the course of the mission? 
Yeah, so far we've acquired, um, I think we're approaching 4 million or maybe we've surpassed 4 million scenes. So again, if, if we were on all the time, we would have, you know, 10 times that much. But because we're not, you know, we get about five to 600 scenes per day. And they're all sitting in the archive and they're all available free and all the data products are available free to anybody who wants them. So there's, it's a pretty big archive and this, the data system that NASA has, the Earth Data Search Tool, is fairly easy to use once you navigate some of its idiosyncrasies, but it's not a terribly difficult data. And if you know the exact route, I can get to Astro data in about 30 seconds. But I've been using it, you know, use it every day, so I know exactly what to type in where and where to go. So First-time users, you know, it would be nice to have somebody standing over their shoulder to say, well, here's what you need to do if you want this product. A lot of data, 4 million scenes. That's a very impressive number. Yeah, but, you know, it's not near the, the Landsat archive, which has been on all the time. So it's much, much bigger. And also their scenes are about 10 times bigger because they have 180 kilometer swath versus 60. But, the, you know, the multi-spectral SWIR is, is still unique. The DEMs are still unique and the TIR. Surprisingly, after all this time, you know, the data are still serving people usefully without good replacements. So we're looking forward to SBG and the other TIR instruments as the follow-ons. So that, that'll be very exciting. So that brings us back to the legacy. Given the, the whole years that Aster has been in space and uh, all the data sets that have been used and uh, publications made and uh, critical raw materials being identified, and then now all, all that data that are being transferred to three major missions from agencies that's supposed to work together, and at the same time, some commercial missions that you mentioned about the fire acquisition, and there are also some about the agriculture. Altogether, how do you see the future of the field? Where would be the main focus? And uh, what type of data do you think is necessary? Well, the I think things are just going to continue incrementally as far as government-funded uh, missions. Their, their main objectives are still climate science, uh, Change, the changing of the planet, vegetation changes, the warming of the oceans. Uh, so the kind of data that need to be acquired for that, those disciplines, really only governments can provide the expensive instruments and data support systems. You need to acquire that kind of global data, like you know, sea surface temperature, you know, daily, weekly, global sea surface temperature, for instance. Commercial companies, I don't think, are interested in that because they're uh, they can't sell the data except maybe back to the government. So the, I think there still will be the, the the separation of it's not niche markets, but specialized markets where the commercial sector can put up small satellites, many of them, to get the temporal coverage you need to look at uh, you know precision farming, for instance where you need high spatial resolution. You maybe need daily coverage to tell the farmers where to water, when the bugs are coming, things of that nature. And uh, governments are not interested in entering that market, particularly in, in, in with uh, ESA, that really wants to support the private sector, the commercial sector, much more than NASA does. And there's active support of the project of the private sector. So I, I still think there'll always be that division 
of who does what, and the governments are more concerned with what's you know good for the planet and good good for everybody's welfare. And private companies will look at all the other applications that they can fill more inexpensively and more nimbly. To be to be honest, our missions take a long time from conception to to launch. Really, it's just impressive. Well, SBG is a good example. We first had a, a project called History, which is basically the same mission, and it went on without getting a, a start for 10 years. Even though it was called out in one of the NASA's advisory documents called the uh, Decadal Survey, a private organization, the National Academy of Sciences, every 10 years puts out a study and then recommendation to different government agencies, what they think are the important areas to, to focus on. So uh, uh, SBG-like instrument was called out, but because of funding limitations, and the decadal survey always says, do this, 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 and this, and NASA says, well, we only have money to do this and this. So we either study money, so 10 years, and uh, history didn't make it. And then the next decadal survey came out, and by God, it was even more strongly recommended. So SBG was formed, basically it was the same as Hisbury, and did get funding finally. It got into the queue to be funded and built, and it's now in phase A. But uh, so 2028, 20, yeah, 28 launch, 29 launch maybe. But that's what, we're looking at almost 20 years. I mean, that's a lot longer than normal, but still. And a commercial company can probably you know, go from start to finish in two or three years. If they focus on you know doing a, a certain thing, so there's a there's a big difference there, and the cost too. SBG is going to be not a cheap mission, and you know sending up cubesats, ten of them at once on a small rocket, um, you can do that rather inexpensively by comparison. So I don't see things really changing that much. If you look at the long-term missions plans for both. ESA and, and NASA, and uh, you look at India, who's probably the other big player, things are pretty much continuing. They have replacement of existing instruments, maybe with a little better capability. But again, looking at pretty similar science focuses, uh, maybe a little, yeah, some change, because they've got to do something different. You can't just keep selling the same thing over and over. So I see more innovation, innovation coming out of the, out of the private sector than coming out of the, the big government agencies. But better data and more of it, which is even better. I would have also one uh, question, which is sort of semi-professional, semi-personal, because uh, it's seldom that you have a scientist with so much experience in the thermal field. Hmm. And the question is, uh, what do you think are the main, uh, the most important skills and information or knowledge fields that you need to to have to be successful in this field? Oh, in in TIR field? Yes. A good a good education in physics, uh, the, the physics of TIR. Uh, maybe that's only you know one course you would need, but one one thing I have been struck with in the last five years maybe, and this is going to, to, to meetings and looking at uh, the boom of artificial intelligence, neural networks, and so forth in the data processing end, is the people who stand up and give the talks having a clue about 
what it is they're, they're measuring, the physics, nothing. They've never looked at a rock. They've never looked at a plant. All they've done is mine data. And they think that, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, but they believe the garbage out. So that is currently where we're at. I'm, there'll be a transition uh, where the technology and the data processing becomes better grounded in the realities of what's going on. But th that whole idea that data processing is divorced from an understanding of what it is you're measuring, why you're measuring it, how you measure it, go out and look at it. Uh, that's a big thing that needs to be done. I, I was struck years ago by a similar analogy, uh, planetary science. We, have, we do a lot of planetary science and planetary geology here. And the people who are planetary geologists, some of them come from geochemistry and some of them have come from geophysics. And I don't think they've ever looked at a rock. They've never looked at an aerial photograph. They've never gone out and mapped a mountain range. So here they are making, you know, it's, it's the same thing as the AI people. They just don't have the background in the realities of the world. You've got to understand firsthand what the world looks like before you can go out and start measuring it and, and believe your data. So that's that's one of my main messages I try to send out, but it's, it's been frustrating at meetings, particularly to keep my mouth shut, <laughs> but I try to. I think there's also been uh, more of cross-disciplinary skill set that's kind of been evolving amongst scientists. So because one of my friends is an evolutionary biologist and she is, uh, you know, she's learning a lot of uh, Python. She says it's much easier for her to learn coding language by herself than to explain it to a machine learning specialist. Exactly. Yes. But at, at some point you have to rely on specialists in other fields. So if you're the scientist, you do have to rely on people who do the data processing, people who understand AI, but vice versa, the people who do AI should not go off all by themselves and think they've solved the world's problems because something comes out of their algorithm. So I get a lot of, I, I, I've been reviewing a lot of papers recently and there have been far too many that I reject based on that, that there's not a sound basis of the, the the geology, the physics, the science, and it's it's the data processing, and yeah, so that's the same thing. You need you need the two to to work together if you can't do it all yourself, and it's getting harder and harder to do that. Clearly, yeah, I mean, Chat GPT will no longer just cut it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Just uh, where we're at status, so uh, we're just in, in the end point of one of these three-year proposal phases, and we're to receive funding again starting September, uh, October 1st for three years. So Aster will keep working, Terra will keep working from funding basis, hopefully for three more years. At any moment, we could be struck by some unknown flying object and be put out of commission. Uh, surprisingly, uh, probably a lot of satellites are killed by that. And the, the problem is, I don't know if you know, there's maybe 150,000 objects, space trash in, in our orbit at the 700 kilometer orbit that are tracked by various military organizations. And we tap into that and they give us a warning when uh, we're on a potential collision course. So we, 
Terra satellite, we can take evasive maneuvers. The problem is they can only track things up to the size of maybe a pea. Anything smaller, they, they can't track. And the problem is that something the size of a pencil point traveling at 20,000 miles an hour can put you out of business. <laughs> one minute you're on, one minute you're off. So far, we've been lucky. We've only, as far as we can tell, had one hit where um, we've lost four or five of our 60 batteries. So that's not, not a bad thing. But if what if we that thing had hit our CPU or the cable that goes between the solar panels and the batteries or any other place? Okay, well, so barring that, we, we should be good for three more years. Um, at that point, our, currently we've run out of maneuvering fuel. So Terra is drifting to an earlier and earlier crossing time. So we were locked in for 20 years at 1030 at the equator. And now we're at about 1010. And in three years, we will hit 9 a.m., where we a priori determined that's it. We're, we're finished. The data become too noisy for some of the instruments. So we're going to terminate the mission in three years, which is when our funding runs out too also. So we have three more years of full, full speed ahead. And then bye-bye, Aster. Bye-bye, Terra. That's pretty lucky, I would say, that Terra has only suffered one hit in the last 20 years. Yeah, all, all three of the, uh, the EOS missions were what are called Class A missions for NASA, and that's where no expense is spared. But as part of that, um, many redundancies are put onto the spacecraft. So, for instance, our, our whole uh, set of 60 batteries, we have a duplicate that we've never used. Similarly, some of the other systems on the Terra spacecraft are duplicated. We've never used any of our duplicate systems, and it's not clear they would work at this point. But if something bad goes wrong where we have a duplicate, conceivably, we could fall back on the duplicate. Most, I don't know any satellites that do that anymore because it's just too expensive. You can't afford to build two satellites, basically. But at the time, this was going to be the, the Rolls-Royce of platforms and uh, no expense was spared. So that's another reason why we've lasted this long is that components were the you know, top of the line components, lifetime tested for 10 times their expected life, if you could do that. So we've been and we've been lucky that we haven't been hit. And unfortunately, with increasing commercial activity, there's only going to be quality of the satellites will not be obviously as much and it would only contribute to space junk more and more. Yeah, well, if they would just stay in lower orbit, that's fine. But it's it's true in every altitude, every desired orbit. There are all the old pieces of junk up there that, you know, when a satellite dies, uh, NASA has required uh, after Aster was launched, satellites were required to have enough fuel to deorbit. So you don't run the risk of just, you know, exploding in orbit. But at the time when we launched, there was no such requirement. So our orbit will slowly, will, will shut down and become, a, I don't know what, a ghost in space. And because we have not enough fuel left to deorbit, our orbit will slowly decay because of friction. And the, the projection was we will burn up somewhere between 50 and 80 years from now, because the decay is very, very slow. But it's also quite a huge satellite. Well, that too, but probably when it does go in, nothing will reach the ground. There have been other things like Skylab and some other uh, equally large 
things that have uh, come through the atmosphere and very little, if any of it, ever reaches the ground. I don't think anybody's ever been hit by a piece of a satellite. And looking at the apocryphal stories, only one person ever has ever been actually hit by a meteorite. And she was hit on her hip by a small meteorite. So I've, you know, that <laughs> really the danger is not to people on the ground, it's the space junk that's the danger to other satellites. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's the big problem. That's true. So we'll still be there hopefully three more years, more Astro data. So we have the huge archive, three more years to come. Yeah. So let's let's use the the possibilities that Astro delivers. Yeah. Well, once once the, the mission is over, the data will still be available for, for potentially forever. NASA does have plans for a, a data archive, and they're supposed to, by congressional law, uh, archive data. There's an Earth's data repository, but plans are being made for how we are going to archive our data, where it will be archived, um, how it will be accessed, probably the same Earth data search will provide access to all the archive of data and all the products. So the data will be available long after the satellite is gone. That's quite a legacy to leave behind. Yeah, we're, we're very proud of it. Wonderful. It's been super interesting. And Mike, it's, it's always so thrilling for me personally to talk to someone who spent 50 years in the space industry. It's, it's, it's so incredible. Uh, hope we could meet sometime at a space conference or some event in person. Yeah, I, I might try to get to the, the next, I don't know, the IGARS meeting, which is in Athens next July. So I'll be over there. When, when is the next um, URSAL meeting? URSAL was just, uh, has just passed. URSAL was in July in Bucharest, and the next one is uh, back in July in Manchester. Okay, so maybe next July. And is the, uh, when is the TIR special group planning on? You don't know yet, right? We do, we actually do. Oh. So uh, the first special session of the special interest group on thermal remote sensing will be in Valencia within the spectroscopy group. Oh, okay. So we uh, have a special session accepted. We are cooperating with uh, the organizers of, the, of that uh, workshop. Yeah. And at the same time, we're also working on planning some further activities, possibly cooperating with other agencies to create another Frascati or uh, maybe in some different parts of the world with agencies in cooperation to bring the scientists, the industry and the, the businesses together to discuss. Oh, great. Good idea. Well, keep, keep me informed on by email of what's happening. We absolutely will. And this podcast will be also uh, shared on our website, but we'll, we also add a discussion. So if anybody <laughs> listening to that podcast has any question, any further comment uh, or some, some thoughts to share, please do comment and we will be looking into it and trying to answer. Okay, yes, yeah, send me the link when it's when it's uh, available and I'll distribute it to the entire Aster team. Absolutely. Good. Thank you so much for taking time. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a real pleasure. It was a pleasure for us too. Thank you, Mike. I've learned so much about thermal imaging today and it's it's been super fun having you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.